The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm Gazelle Amami. Before we get started this week, we have a small favor to ask of you. Here at Panoply, we're trying to learn more about our podcast listeners. We want you to tell us about the podcasts you enjoy and how often you listen to them. So we created a survey that just takes a couple of minutes to complete. If you fill it out, you'll help Panoply make great podcasts about the things you love and things you didn't even know you loved. To fill out the survey, just go to panoply.fm survey. Or you can click the link we've provided in the show notes for this episode. That's panoply.fm slash survey, or click the link in the show's notes. And this is the last week we're asking, so if you get it done this week, we won't bother you with this ever again. So (laughs) I'm here with Margaret Lyons, TV columnist at Vulture, and Matt Zoller-Seitz, TV critic. How are you guys doing? Good. We missed you. Good. I missed, kind of missed you guys. <laughs> Welcome back from Greece. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I know you particularly, Matt, have a TV moment you, you wanted to talk about. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's just uh, a particular TV moment as much as it's a TV experience, which is watching Tut. Can you tell us a little bit about what Tut is? Tut is about King Tut. It's just one of these, it kind of, it made me feel nostalgic. It made me feel a little mm-hmm. nostalgic for this period in the 90s when the networks were throwing tons and tons of money at miniseries that were just, like, lying there dying for six hours or eight hours. It's really, really bad. I mean, it's so bad that Ben Kingsley, who can give a good performance under almost any circumstances, looks sad. <laughs> he looks sad. Like, a lot of, I swear to God, there's long stretches of this thing where he just looks like, how did it come to this? Well, how did I end up here? What am I going to do? God, like, how many more depressing. days are left? Yeah, it's really, it's incredible in its way. I mean, I don't know why we expected <laughs> Spike to give us, like, some sort of masterful <laughs> yeah, Egyptian it, they miniseries. Were, it was very over, not overhyped, but I felt like I was hearing about it a lot. There were billboards everywhere. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. that's certainly an indicator of quality. <laughs> it certainly is. It certainly is. Well, I just thought that this is further evidence that the success of Hatfields and McCoys on the History Channel was one of the worst things to happen to TV because that was one of those like let's throw a ton of money at something that normally would be on a like an HBO or somewhere and see how it goes and it went very very well and suddenly every network got dollar signs in their eyes and said we need a miniseries we need a big historical miniseries that is as prestigious as something that Miramax would have put in movie theaters 20 years ago and you know that's not what happened. That's just not what happened. And some, I think some networks shouldn't be getting into this business. I really don't. Margaret, is there anything that stuck out to you? Uh, <laughs> yes, I have returned to an old favorite, actually. Yeah. So I used, one of my favorite reality shows of all time is Tough Enough. Uh, I was obsessed yeah. with the MTV version, which aired like a really long time ago. This is like an, a very, very old show that was clearly made for like tens of dollars. Like the elimination <laughs> round just included folding up like a metal folding chair. Right. Like, so it was like a pretty, like the contestants just to drive themselves places. Like it was very, what um, is the, the So premise? it's like, it's a reality contest skill show to become a WWE wrestler. And I'm not particularly interested in WWE wrestling in, like in general. Like I, I don't think I've ever seen any professional wrestling mm-hmm. to be totally honest. But the show was just like totally captivating in the way that like any kind of skill set that you're not familiar with is like inherently interesting to me. Like I'd watch a show about screen printing or whatever, right? Like it's just interesting to see people who are good at something. Uh, and the show was revived on USA a couple years ago, and I didn't love the first revival season. I watched a couple episodes and was like, eh, not so much for me. 
And now this season, I caught all the way up on the five episodes that have aired so far. I'm super into it. What's tough, though, is I feel like the content of, you know, the contestants at the house and the contestants learning their, like, challenge of the week. You know, it's like mm-hmm. like a Project Runway or Top Chef, the same kind of every week we have, like, the challenges, like, courage or whatever. And that part is terrific. And it's a really, really well-cast show. I think the contestants are all feel like really viable contenders and there's a lot of people that you're like oh I could see you winning it's not a lot of you know oh he's just here for drama or whatever they've gotten rid of those contestants very quickly so I I really like that aspect of the show but the judging round is done live and it's really badly executed and so like the three judges try to talk to the contestants but it's not clear that the contestants realize that they're being personally addressed so there's a lot of like "Uh, me you're talking (laughs) me my turn and Chris Jericho is hosting and like you know he's a pretty um, telegenic guy But, you know, hosting a live thing, I think people sort of underestimate, this is kind of weird, but like underestimate how hard it is to actually be Ryan Seacrest. Like that is, (laughs) no, I I would agree with that. That's a lot harder than it looks. And Mm -hmm. I think the sort of production of how to do a live episode or a live, you know, judging round or whatever, like that, that takes a little bit more panache, I think, than, than sometimes we realize. And so that part, and you know, like Hulk Hogan is there and he's like scolding people. And it's like, look, if we want to have like Hulk Hogan on TV scolding people, like, like, let's do that. Like, do it up. It's a WWE show that makes perfect sense, but not in these weird little, like, 14-second nuggets. And then everyone has, like, the three people on the chopping block at 30 seconds to defend themselves, but they have a very bad sense of how long 30 seconds is. So sometimes it's, like, guys are like, oh, you know, I don't really want to stay on this show. And the clock in the corner is at, like, 28. <laughs> right? So it's just, like, it's so weird. And it just seems like such a bad way to, like, like ruin what's otherwise, like, a very compelling, very fun, like, propulsive reality contest show especially because the judging is supposed to be like the most tense, exciting part. You know, I think mm-hmm. any top model fan can vouch for that. Mm-hmm. And so this just strikes me as like such a bizarre production choice. But I, I'm happy to feel like I'm back in the mix with this I, show that I love. I don't know how to feel about this <laughs> at all. But Give it a go. Fascinating. Gazelle, did you have a TV moment? I've been out of town, so I'm catching up a bit. But I caught Halt and Catch Fire. And I'm becoming more interested in Cameron's character and I felt like she's starting to develop a little more. I I liked some scenes with her in this in Sunday night's episode um, where her and her boyfriend, I guess, Tom, are he like says I love you and she's not saying it back and that whole scene and how she played it by not saying a word. I thought she did really well. <laughs> I'm seeing her as more of like a rounded personality than they had previously you know, they hadn't given her as much emotional depth, basically. And now I'm seeing more shades to her character. And right. It's good. So moving on, this episode, we're going to talk about the Emmy nominations. And then we're going to talk about two shows that premiered last week that both have to do with washed up stars. One who's a musician and the other one who was a former TV star. Bojack Horseman and Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. If you have any questions for us, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. So the Emmys, what were the biggest snubs and surprises? I think like the biggest bummer was the Americans getting basically no uh, didn't yeah. get Jack, really. And this yeah. isn't unusual, right? No, so FX has sort of had a hard time cracking the Emmy mm-hmm. wall. I, I mean, I'm not sure what the exact issue is. They've had plenty of good, interesting shows. But The Americans, I think, is a show that I know is a show that Matt and I both adore. And yeah. I thought they had a, a real banner season. Like, this was a fantastic season. It was great. It was the best With some yet. fantastic yeah. performances, certainly. And um, it's so widely acclaimed in the critical community. Yeah, too. and, you know, the Emmys 
tends not to care as much about ratings. It's not particularly like, oh, of course, the most popular shows get nominated sometimes. And certainly in comedy, I feel like that can be a bigger factor. But for dramas, that's not at all. So the idea that like, oh, maybe the Americans is too under the radar. It's like, mm, that's not really that's not really true for the Emmys. Yeah. So it was a little bit of a bummer not to see not to see anyone from the Americans. Um, there were some other shows that I can think of that have been in that situation, like anything by David Simon. Sure. You know, like I remember yeah. The Wire, the persistent complaint among fans of The Wire was, what does this show not exist as far as the Emmys are concerned? Yeah. And then Treme was the same kind of thing. Although and, I think it might have scored a couple nominations here and there, but it wasn't anything like on the order of what I think it deserved. I think also Justified. Yes. Like, I, this season. Mm-hmm. Um, Justified was another one. Which especially because gotten... it was its final season. You know, there's yeah. like there's the sort of shred of hope like, oh, maybe the Americans will eventually. Walton Goggins, for God's I sake. I mean. <laughs> Come on. Come on. I feel like he's still owed Emmys from The Shield, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and this would be like a cumulative Emmy. <laughs> yeah. Um, back, back Emmys. Yeah. yeah. So that was sort of a bummer. But I think, um, you know, it was cool to see Titus Burgess from... Uh, uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah, I thought that was totally. a really exciting surprise nomination. I was really happy to see that. Yeah, it was good. I was mostly happy with the dramas and comedies. And, you know, there's things like, you know, Modern Family again, great. But, you know, that was always true of the Emmys. There's always there's always been certain shows that keep getting nominated year after year. And you're like, we got it. You like it. It's fine. <laughs> but there were, you know. I mean, to see Transparent get nominated, yeah. that was, you know, I think the idea that the Emmys are somehow like stodgy and out of touch has become a less and less true idea. Yeah. Uh, I think shows that... You have to have a ton of nominations for Orange is the New Black, competing right. as a drama this year. It's fun to see, right? Like, I, it's always exciting. Like, not that awards are somehow a barometer of anything other than what an Emmy is, right? right. And it doesn't... But it's nice to see it reflect the culture in some way. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny because I've been doing this long enough that I remember the incredible defensiveness that the broadcast networks felt when cable channels started to get a bunch of Emmy nominations. When they opened up the competition to shows on cable... Whereas they used to have their own, you know, the Cable Ace Awards, which sounds so... Which is always now like a punchline. It is really. It's like so diminutive and pathetic that they had the, wow. their own little, here's your own little awards, have fun. But you I feel know? like that's like a, like a slur that Murphy Brown yells at people. Right? Yes, it's like, yes. oh, talk to your Cable Ace Award about it. Right? Like that <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Like it's so... Exactly. And I remember the network executives when I was at a press tour were grumbling about this. I mean, privately usually, but sometimes publicly that they didn't think it was fair. They didn't think it was a level playing field that... They had to answer to advertisers, and a lot of these premium cable shows did not, and therefore they inherently had more artistic freedom than the network shows and so forth. And Do you think cable feels that way about streaming nowadays? I'm not sure because everything's kind of streaming if you think yeah. about it in a certain way. It's just more competition in general. Yeah, it's just there's more of everything, and I feel like when it was broadcast versus cable, it was the objections were a little bit more clearly drawn, you mm-hmm. know? But here it's like, okay, we have cable. Now cable probably feels like it's maybe not the dinosaur, but the mammoth, you know? Mm-hmm. And and all these streaming shows are coming along. There's things on Hulu and Amazon and Netflix, and but they're all television shows. And, and this is something we've talked about before, but there are times when I honestly don't know what to call something that I'm writing about. Like, like it's a, a you know, TV show? Or, it is a yeah. show, but is it a television show? Like, how many people are really watching these things on TV? Like, I don't even know what the terms really mean anymore. I used to know. I think everybody did, but that's not the case so much. How did you think this compared to, like, recent years of Emmy noms? I thought this was a pretty yeah. good one. Yeah. I mean, Breaking Bad had been sort of an Emmy darling, and, and rightfully so. It wasn't one of those head scratchers. Like, Breaking Bad's a fantastic show, but it ended. So now we have this, like, last chance for Mad Men, um, <laughs> which has never won an acting Emmy, which mm-hmm. is sort of hard to believe. Crazy. But no one has won an acting Emmy for Mad Men. Wow. So, That's pretty you nuts. know, 
it feels like, okay, maybe this is the chance for Elizabeth Moss or for certainly John Hamm. Yeah. So I think the Mad Men question is big for, for right now. And I also think Transparent winds up maybe creating a slightly different spin on like, what are the Emmys about now? Because that's a that's a pretty small show. And I love it. I love it completely. But it's a pretty small show, but it's a show that is widely loved. And it won what did it win? A Golden Globe. A Golden yeah, Globe, right. It did. Yeah. And there's no question that it's a show that is respected. Like even if it even if people don't necessarily respond to it, they respect it. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's gonna surprise people. I really do think it's gonna surprise people when the awards are handed out. What did you think about Bloodlines nominations? Kyle Chandler for outstanding lead. Kyle Chandler, and I say this as a huge Kyle Chandler fan, I didn't actually get that much no, from not no. until like the last but maybe it's, epi- it's, couple episodes. Like yeah. it wasn't it's not that it's bad acting. It's certainly good acting, but I don't know that it's a lot of acting. Right. I don't know. No. I guess it just that versus like John Hamm and what we think about like what goes into a Don Draper moment versus yeah. what went into God, I don't even remember his there name. There were so many great moments for for John Hamm this year. That finale particularly was unbelievable. It was like one great scene after another for him and and you really felt the cumulative power of that performance building up. And even uh you know moments that were more fleeting like when he touches the window at McCann. You know, oh, right. Like the window's sealed shut and he touch it's like it's great. It's <laughs> great. And like he's he's really just a master he's absolutely masterful at giving you something to contemplate without necessarily telling you what he's thinking. You know, that's there's a certain type of actor who's really, really good at that mm-hmm. and he's one of them. Sometimes when we think about acting, we think a lot about close-ups, right, and, and the sort of way someone's eyes dart or their brow furrows or, like, the little bit of a smile. But I think sometimes we maybe minimize how important, like, the whole body is to the to- storytelling. And I think there are scenes in, in certainly like, the final arc of Mad Men where we see Don look very small. Right? Yes. And just, like, the way his rib cage is and, like, where his posture lands and, and how he's walking and, and like, how much that tells you about how minimized he feels as a human. And then in that final shot right where he's meditating he doesn't have his eyes open right like there's not and like that little Mm -hmm. smile is cute but what we see (laughs) is this like whole composition of his body and the way he looks and just like you can feel that versus like the way he was crumpling down when he's calling peggy on the payphone right right? he's curled up Mm -hmm. practically in a fetal position in that and i think just like so much of like how we tell the story like when when actors like try to tell a story through not just their delivery and not just their face but through their whole body and their whole temperament and stuff that becomes very memorable and, and very essential to how this show operates. I got I got to say something that really jumped out at me for some reason uh, with this batch of nominations is I think that what the Academy Awards consider to be good acting and what the Emmys consider to be good acting, I feel like I'm down with the Emmys. I'm way more down with the Emmys because yeah. you see a much wider variety of kinds of performance that are considered good. And it's like there seems to be much more of a sense of an excellent example of that kind of performance. Here's a nomination. Right. You know, whereas yeah, it, on the Oscars, I feel like it's heavily weighted towards, you know, putty noses and people crying and you know what I'm saying? I think the idea of Emmy bait is a lot different than the idea of Oscar bait, right? And I think right. Oscar bait has a much clearer, stronger connotation of like some kind of soaring monologue and probably like a World War II oriented, like, <laughs> right? Or some, like, yeah. like that kind of thing versus like what constitutes Emmy bait. And I think there was a period there for like the anti-hero stuff where it was like a lot clearer, but now it doesn't feel clear at all. Like I don't, no. I don't know that, certainly for comedies, I don't know what would constitute Emmy bait and I don't no. even among the drama categories uh, and I mean, like the Tatiana Maslany yeah so we yes. finally ha- yeah. we have like and then we also have a lot of nominations for streep. Game of Thrones we have a streep now we have a streep <laughs> um, and, and she's on one show it's like Meryl Streep's <laughs> entire career is on one show now 
But also, you know, Game of Thrones having performance um, nominations too, right? So yeah. it's sort of like idea that the Emmys always ignore genre shows. That was a complaint for a long time. No longer true. I'm not really sure it was ever true, but it's certainly less it less not less not true. You <laughs> I think know? as a Battlestar Galactica fan, there is a... Oh, uh, that's true. Yeah, okay. But I know? was thinking about, like, you know, cop shows and hospital shows. Oh, no, shows. I meant genre yeah. in terms of, like, fantasy, fantasy. sci-fi. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Spaceships and dinosaurs yeah, and things. The, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. So I think the idea of, like, oh, well, if you really want an Emmy nomination, you gotta do fill in the blank. Like, I, that doesn't Right. I don't. I have no idea what that blank is, other than like be pretty good at your job, <laughs> right. right? And even then, right. like lots of people who are really good at his and her jobs are not getting nominated. Well, up next, we'll talk about two comedies that premiered last week about washed-up stars, and we'll start with the good one, <laughs> Bojack Horseman. <laughs> this is an animated show for adults, and it stars a horseman. <laughs> named Bojack Horseman, who <laughs> was the star of a show in the late 80s, early 90s called Horsin' Around. I'm surprised and- they didn't call it Full Horse. <laughs> <laughs> so Bojack is, when we first meet him, he's trying to make a comeback with a biography that his friend Diane ends up writing. And in the second season that just premiered on Friday, he is once again making a different sort of comeback as the lead of a film production called Secretariat. Secretariat. <laughs> Great name. Ah. The show has been widely praised for its portrait of depression. And I'm wondering what makes you guys think this show is different from animated shows that are for adults. You know, it's certainly like smarter and funnier than I think lots of other shows. I think like comparing it just to other animated right. shows feels sort of weird because it's like, oh, what is it like versus Bob's Burgers? And it's like, oh, right. those shows are just it's, completely different. It's more like spiritually aligned with Mad Men more so <laughs> in a well, way. I was going to say, actually, a lot of animated shows and even shows kind of aimed at kids have dealt with show- showbiz, like The Muppet mm-hmm. Show. Like There's a lot of The Muppet Show on this, the kind of backstage drama and yelling at your agent and worrying about, you know, what, what your next part's going to be. Like, that's straight-up Muppets. But also the Larry Sanders show. It reminds me a lot of the Larry mm-hmm. Sanders show and some of the better Hollywood satires that have come along. But I feel like it just has something unique about it. And it's partly that it's mostly a comedy, but it's also a very uncomfortable comedy, but it's not. there's no clear separation between the funny and not funny parts mm-hmm. of it. That's the most fascinating thing to me about it is it'll go off on a reverie like that. I guess it was the second to the last episode of the first season with the oh, drug trips. That's one of the oh, best episodes that's an of the year. That was fucking believably good. <laughs> I mean, that was like really, really something else. And, and just it was well done on its own terms, but also notable for the way that it departed from the tone of the rest of the season without destroying the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not easy to do. On paper, I think the show kind of has a lot in common with weirdly Californication. Mm. We have this lead guy. He's kind of like a, like he's a drunk and he has sex with a lot of people and he's nasty. And then there's like people who are close to him who who still love him and there's a softness there and maybe mm-hmm. there is a good side to this person. I think Californication is a show that is not very good and also like sees its main dude as like, but aren't you kind of jealous? Like, don't yeah. you wish you could be that right. fucked up? And it's like, ooh, no, right? And BoJack has a completely different take on on how it sees its main character, right? And I think they play that sense of, like, tragedy and loss. And I think with the way this season, as much as the first season was about depression, I think this season is, is a lot less about that and a lot more about, like, are you your history, right? Because yeah. we have yeah. we open with a scene that made me cry within, like, the first 30 seconds of the new season where we see, like, BoJack as a child and his parents are fighting. 
This is from Bojack H. Bojack is nine years old. When I grow up, I want to be just like you, and I think I'm on the right track. Get it? Track? Because horses run on tracks, and you are a horse, and I am a horse. Do you get it? Do you get my joke about the track? Okay, there's a whole page of this. Should I write him back and tell him I get it? He goes on. My question for you is, I am a good kid, and I like to play, and I like to go to school. Sometimes I get sad. What do you do when you get sad? Oh! Big stud running off to gallivant with your fillies. That's supposed to impress me? Because I can smash a dinner plate, too. That's a salad plate, you peasant. What? I thought these were the salad plates. Those are saucers. Why do we even have saucers? We don't drink tea. Those saucers are for entertaining. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm exit-taining. Do you get it? So we still have jokes. It's like, why do we even have saucers? They're for company, right? Like, we hear this, like, pretty funny fight, but it's also really nasty and brutal. And also the way it's staged, it's their shadows on the wall in the background. And yeah. his face like, is illuminated by the television. And it's, like the, way, it's yeah. like the way an old movie would do it. It, like, reminded me of, you know, some of the family disturbances and, like, the Magnificent Ambersons, bizarrely. <laughs> you know, like, that's not something I would expect to enter my mind watching a cartoon about a horse. Yeah, I feel like man. every single choice, <laughs> I feel like every single choice within an episode or within a scene is extremely deliberate. So we have like surprisingly artful framing of a lot of, of stuff. Yeah. We also have like tons of weird little jokes. Like anytime there's like a banner or a t-shirt or something, like we have the t-shirts that Mr. Peanut Butter gets made for <laughs> Diane. It's like, I had a ball at Diane's birthday party. Underline ball. I don't know why this is so hard. Right. And it says that on the shirt. Or like the banner at like a birthday party, I think in season one, where it's like, happy birthday, Mr. Peanut Butter. Peanut butter's all one word. Right. And yes. that's what's written on the banner. Right. So you just have, like you can imagine the little like joke phone call. Right. Like you the poster, have... the poster on the wall of the doctor's office uh, <laughs> yeah. where peanut butter's uh, getting his uh, uh, cone tended to and it says talk to your kids about puberty and it shows a moth emerging from a cocoon <laughs> yeah, like and he's giving the thumbs up and for some I feel like the thumbs up is what really puts it over the top for me he's like hey puberty's awesome <laughs> so we have all of these weird like very minor details right so like yeah. stuff that if they didn't have that that wouldn't seem like a oversight right but the fact that it's there really like enriches every single moment of the show but I think the season about like are you doomed to be the person that you were? Like, <laughs> you vultures are killing me. And then the camera, pan, the, ca- the camera pans to the vultures. Yeah, that's great. I mean, there's also like the um, Marlon Brando, the Marlon Fish, yeah. who's like oh, yeah. a bartender. He's like, Stella, Stella, Corona, right? Because he's like pouring beers. Like, yes. These are really like... Again, you could ha- you could not have those. And, and Bojack you- totally overdoing the you know the wit, like like the was it you can lead? What does he say? Oh, you, you can, can lead a horse to roller, but you can't you make, can't him, make rink. him rink. And he pauses before he says rink. Oh God, <laughs> this is heaven for me. This show. I just I love it. I think it's so funny, and also it just takes it. I think one of the things that makes a comedy not just funny but really impactful is how seriously it takes its character sort of like internal dignity right and everyone is it obvious I'm wearing a cone <laughs> yeah <laughs> meanwhile Mr. Peanut Butter who's a golden retriever um, uh, is wearing right I think like they, I love the way that like the dogginess of him right when yes. when he talks about how he's so excited to see Diane when she gets home that part and he's kind of about, devastated me and he's talking about like his marriage right yeah. like, but it's yeah. also I don't know you ever have a dog like they're pretty excited when you come home <laughs> yeah I, and he's chasing the mailman in a car yeah. you know no, just it's great. It's great. I think this season played a lot too with the chicken episode of like I love the chicken episode. <laughs> like how does being sort of this like animal person hybrid like what about what about meat? these animals? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, this season also plays with the idea of happiness and like how 
you know, once you do get what you want, is that ever enough? With Bojack, he's in this perfect position. He's starring in a film, but he still can't seem to be happy. And Diane, too, you know, she has these opportunities, but she can't seem to quite figure out what it is she wants. I was surprised how much, or not surprised, but I I think the first season we had a lot of like, oh, are, like how much are we supposed to want and root for Bojack and Diane to get together, right? Because we see Bojack fall for her. They kiss at one point. They have like a very strong relationship because she's writing a biography of him and he's very excited and flattered by that. But also, you know, like she's really cool. She's smart. She's interesting. And they like they hit it off. And once yeah. he sort of drops his shtick and they can be like more real mm-hmm. with each other, they get along great. Maybe better and in a more intellectual way than she gets along with her husband, Mr. Peanut Butter, which is such a ridiculous sentence to say. Yes. Um, <laughs> but this season, with Bojack's new love interest, Wanda. Wanda. Yeah. Oh, man. That's, I thought that was Voiced by Lisa Kudrow. That was great. That was great. Yeah. I thought, she's an excellent new character. Yeah. I also thought, like, you know, like, this just in Lisa Kudrow, good at acting. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was, I just, I loved how, I just, I thought Wanda was, like, such an interesting, fun addition. Yeah, she was great. And his his reaction to being in love was <laughs> magnificent. Just magnificent. Like, like I want to do, I want to do stuff with you in daylight. <laughs> do you want to go to... Food? <laughs> yes. The episode that really sold me on Wanda, and I was like, you know, in, in the tank for her, certainly, but um, but when she tries to tell Bojack, or she, when she does tell Bojack a joke, and it starts out, oh, yeah. uh, she starts telling this like sort of weird, like, like Norm MacDonald-esque, like, non-joke, um, and just ends, and Bojack is horrified, and he's like, that's not a joke, and she plays her very cool, and she's like, well, okay, you know, and, and then at the end of the episode, it comes back, and in this way that I absolutely did not see coming and it was just like oh wow this is a this is a show that has a lot of um narrative strategy right yeah, like i think the goal is to have like this very intense story and then the joke parts the jokes are icing like what's happening here is like a really thoroughly told story and it happens yeah, to be very funny but it mm-hmm. is and it's also very exact in the way that it chooses what to show us and you know it's very deliberate and how many scenes there are in an episode and what's happening in the scene. And and this is something, this is neither here nor there. Like, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but a lot of comedies, a lot of animated comedies, the scenes are very short and they do a lot of cross-cutting. And again, it's that thing that I keep railing about on this show is this fear on the part of people who create television and movies that we can't sit still, we can't concentrate anymore, that if they're not jumping all over the place, that we're going to get bored and go do something else. And BoJack Horseman is this strangely patient for a show about, you know, animated humans and half animals <laughs> series. And, and they'll let you sit with somebody. They'll let you sit yeah. with people while they're talking. And there are also moments where people, you know, as Margaret was saying, like, people will realize things. Like, we'll see somebody's face. Like, something will be happening in a character's face, and it happens to be a, a horse or an owl. You know, mm-hmm. it's and great. it's reduced to the smallest possible gesture. Yeah, right. Chuck jo- like, it's a Chuck Jones thing. Yeah, yeah. So animation has that weird thing where it's basically single camera comedy, right? Like, there's no laugh track. It's not in front of. It's not on a set, right? So, like other single camera shows, it needs this way to create a connection to the audience because it's hard to laugh by yourself, right? We just don't do that like as a mammal response. That's what mm-hmm. laugh tracks do. They give us punctuation and make us feel like we're part of it. And so on a lot of contemporary single camera shows, that's why we have a mockumentary format where the characters talk right to us. So we know exactly what they're thinking. And we get Jim from the office giving us this exaggerated take. Or we get... Which is basically like a laugh track. Sure, right. And then on shows like Family Guy, and this is not a virtue or value judgment, but on Family Guy, we get a lot of whip cuts, right? Where we have the quick little aside and then we're right back into the scene. And we have our scene going on, 
moment. It's like the time in. you did blah 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 right. cut to blah blah blah. And so that is giving us like a glimpse into that person's brain, right? So we have this like real moment of like, oh, this is exactly what he's thinking. He's telling us it and we're experiencing it and now we're back in the scene. And Bojack is not paced like that at all. It's paced mm-hmm. much more like a drama in the sense of like, we have a lot of people in repose. We have a lot of moments where a character, you know, someone gets out of the car and then our other character is sitting there in the driver's seat with the, like, what did I just do? Or like, what yes. did she just say? Or it's like, comedy, wait, did it's, I miss? It's a comedy of discomfort, and it sounds completely bizarre to say it, but if you've, you know, watched the show, you get it, which is it's more, it's sort of like like an early Mike Lee film or like an early Albert Brooks comedy. Oh, I where, think Albert you know, Brooks is a really I think, apt I, I, I feel like I feel like Albert Brooks might actually be on their minds as they're making this show, like in the way that, you know, Albert Brooks's movie Modern Romance, there's a scene where he takes a quaalude and there's an entire scene and most of it is one take of him just, you know, stumbling around at home deciding whether or not to call people on the phone. He, like, calls up his editors like, you know, I've never told you this before, but I love you. <laughs> you know, and, like, looking at his records, I have so many amazing albums, and putting one on, and he doesn't like it, and he throws it across the room, and does it have anything to do with the narrative? Well, yes and no. But, you know, I appreciate that they're able to go at the character in that way, and Bojack does a lot of that sort of thing, like where you wonder where is this going, and it is going somewhere, but it's not going somewhere in the sort of literal-minded way that a lot of shows are plotted. I think people always associate Woody Allen with stories about anxiety and, and sort of a self-recrimination. But I think Albert Brooks is maybe the better comparison here because I also think his films deal a lot with anxiety and self-recrimination. And I think for BoJack, it's not... Um, They're also usually set in the world of showbiz now that I think of it. Hmm. Hmm, interesting. Um, we're playing with that dynamic of... How important is praise? How important is it to be beheld? How much of our lives need to be acknowledged and witnessed for it to matter, right? And so that's part of the reason that Bojack's, uh, I always want to call him Jesse, but it's not Jesse Pinkman. That is a system that Todd lives with him, right? It's yeah. Part of it is to have a record. He's basically Jesse. Yeah. I mean, it's really funny how um, Jesse-like he is. <laughs> that we're going to have like some kind of witness to our experience. And certainly if you've experienced celebrity, that probably twists your relationship to that. And I think the show, you know, has a very sour take on celebrity culture, but also it takes it very seriously, like how toxic that can be, especially for people who are very young when they become famous. Yeah. And Um, Bojack is surprisingly sympathetic, I would say, for someone who... Well, he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know anything. Like, his sense of what the world is has been totally warped for so long. Like, he might as well be somebody who, like, is... Been, like a child. Or, or I was going to say, or like somebody is, who like grew up on a desert island or on a, yeah. like on another planet or something. Like that's how. Like, that's what the director of Secretariat says, right? It's yeah. like, oh, once people become famous, they stop growing because they don't have to. Yeah. And that's why Bojack is so compatible with Wanda, who has been in a coma for twenty or thirty <laughs> that's years. Right. Thirty years. Um, yeah. That you know they both are very emotionally stunted because of you know very different circumstances. Right. We'll be talking about the second half of Bojack Horseman's second season next week. And you can catch the full season on Netflix. I would say start yeah. with the first season. I think the second season is oh, fantastic, yeah. but I would definitely, if you're like, should I just jump in? I think you should start at There's the There's a cumulative power to it if you start with one. A lot of people weren't as taken with the first season, and I feel like it's starting to become recognized in a different way this season. Yeah, I think the first Whereas, few episodes of the first season, they do lay a lot of really important groundwork, mm-hmm. but they seem a lot more superficial than the rest of the show. And I think that's natural if we're just getting to know characters. It's hard right. to build profound moments into those early episodes. But I think early on... I, 
I had a lot of friends who were like, yeah, I watched two episodes. I don't, I didn't get what the hype was. And I agree to a certain degree. Like, I think the first few episodes don't quite have the heft and right. depth that the show eventually builds to. But I would say that, like, at around episode six or seven in the first season is when we start to get this, like, real snowballing of what's happening. And, and it becomes much clearer what kind of story is being told. So I would encourage new watchers to really be a little bit, bit patient here because it's it's very much worth it. Good advice, Margaret. <laughs> So now on to the bad. (laughs) Last week, another show about a washed up rock star premiered on FX. It's called Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. And it was created by Dennis Leary and also stars him as the washed up 90s rock star named Johnny Rock. At the point when we meet him, he's trying to build a solo career for himself built on the legacy of his former band, The Heathens. And the plot probably sounds like something you've heard a version of before. His long-lost daughter comes back to town. He hits on her at a bar when he doesn't realize it's her. She asks him if she can get his old band back together in order to write songs for her to start her own career because she has aspirations to be a musician as well. Matt, you called it a total misfire in your review. What what about it missed the mark so much? In well, your opinion? almost everything. Yeah. I mean, there's one. Dennis Leary has done three shows that a friend of mine was saying it's like the Dennis Leary fantasy career trilogy. You know, there's the job where he's a cop. There's Rescue Me where he's a firefighter, and now here he is as a rock star. And yeah. and he's he's always playing kind of the same character, which in and of itself is not you know necessarily a deal killer, but. His conception of the characters are so, although I like the job, Rescue Me less so, this not at all, his conception of these characters is really hypocritical. I mean, maybe hypocritical is not the right word, but he wants to eat his cake and have it too. Like he wants us to find these characters pathetic and look at them in a way that we can laugh at them and we can see it as sort of a critique of certain tendencies that heterosexual men have, the way that they see things like honor and achievement and all this kind of stuff. But also to see him as this heroic figure who can, like, do more drugs than anybody, get laid more than anybody. And, you know, it was particularly egregious on Rescue Me where he's just spectacular, like, Johnny Rotten-level fuck-up. But he also is the guy that you want in your corner whenever a building is burning. He always does the most heroic, self-sacrificing things. And I just can't even—I just can't take the guy. I can't take the guy. And this one here, he's deprived of the crutch of Jeopardy. And I think that's why people are sort of being harsher on this show than on the other two. Because at least on the job and Rescue Me, you've got two people who are in professions where there's a chance you might die. You know, right. and in rock and roll, you, I guess you might die if you snort, you know, drain cleaner or step through a glass door or something. But it's not like being a firefighter. So that automatically reduces the amount of sympathy for this guy. And then there's also this other issue, which is he he and his people that he assembles don't create interesting women. They just don't. And And his daughter is this ranting, raving, monologue delivering shrew like a lot of the women on Dennis Leary's shows. And I didn't believe a word that came out of her mouth. And I didn't believe a word that came out of his mouth, for the most part. And and also, I couldn't even tell, like, what era are they supposed to be from? Yeah, like, it feels like a 70s rock band, but that Well, their era is like the, the early 90s. 90s. Yeah, yeah. their era is the early 90s. We hear Dave Grohl, like, extolling their virtues, which is another device that I kind <laughs> of wish would be retired, where we have real, like, celebrities talking about fictional ones to give them credibility. But anyway, it just, it just doesn't matter. I just, couldn't, I just couldn't stand it. It was so dead. It was so fake. The whole thing was so 
so just annoying to me. Margaret, what what did you think of so the I, show? So I hated it less than Matt hated it. And I will, I would like, as somebody who used to really, really like Rescue Me, to draw a distinction between early seasons of Rescue Me and later seasons of Rescue Me. And Rescue Me is a show that suffered from FX's model of keeping things around way too long, hmm. and uh, which, ha- it, which it's corrected for a bit now. But certainly Nip Tuck was a similar era, and it was just like a couple of really good seasons and then a bunch of... Just garbage. And I loved early Nip Tuck, too, and it really Mm -hmm. did not need to be as long as it was. I think Rescue Me is sort of similar. I will say that early on, I think Rescue Me was one of the best examples of what it's like to deal with grief that I've ever seen on television. So we have Tommy on Rescue Me. His cousin, his like best friend and cousin uh, died in 9-11 and he's he can't process it. And so like we see Tommy, like we see um, his cousin like uh, sitting in his kitchen, they're having a conversation, and 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 you know he doesn't want to acknowledge that, like he's having these sort of. It's not exactly hallucinations. It's not like he thinks he's really there, but he does still want to talk to this person who's dead. And and I think that the way it kind of identified the magical thinking that can go along with really catastrophic grief was really beautiful and precise, and something that at the time most other shows weren't doing. It was certainly the first time I had seen something that felt relevant to to me in terms of like, oh, this is what it was like when I was really, really fucked up about stuff. Like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of like that. And I think like in that sense, I will like I, that sh- that's a show that like meant a lot to me at the time and later on became a fiasco of a show. Uh, I also think the supporting characters on Rescue Me came out of the gate a lot stronger. Uh, we had like a lot more interesting people around our main character and on Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, there's no one interesting. I think the time period is really, really strange because early 90s like Dennis Leary's character seems like he's sort of like a la the Ramones right that's the sound right. of the that's like but it's actually a la somebody who was in high school in the 90s who who had a lot of Ramones albums yeah like that's and that's like and, why don't you just be specific about that no but when we like I know? think you know when Dennis Leary thinks of what a rock star is it's that yeah but and Keith Richards which he mentions a lot right but Keith Richards like heyday is not the early 90s no no right like it, it just, doesn't. It doesn't make sense. It didn't and, track at all. And musically, I feel like if you're gonna do a show like this, and the premise is gonna be that this music is good, like you, you have to make good music for it. Because yeah. I just thought it was really. Oh, it was bad. Really, it's, really bad. it's like it's like I won't say horrendously bad, yeah. but it's sort of like I would say good by the standards of a pretty good bar band that you go to see exactly. uh, you know once a month because somebody you know is in it and then every right. now, and then they'll, every now and then they'll bust out an original song and you'll be like oh god and then you hear it and you're like actually that's not bad it's not that's so bad that's about as far as you can go with it though it's not like holy shit this is going to go to number 1 but i think know? so like at the end of the pilot of Nashville which is a show that a real mixed bag at best. But at the end of the pilot, we have these two characters singing together at the Bluebird. And they're mm-hmm. singing this song, If I Didn't Know Better. And it's a 10 out of 10, right? Yeah. You're just mm-hmm. like, holy shit. Like, yeah. they're really good singers. This song is amazing. And, like, when you watch them on stage, you're just like, ooh, you. And so we have a character, like, hold up the phone and be like, do you hear that, right? Which mm-hmm. is kind of like a schlocky moment but you buy it right because it's like oh yep i get it and like i think nashville despite its other shortcomings i buy i understand absolutely that like this music presented to us as good is pretty good and it's like she's a pop country star this is her song you're like yeah that's pretty that's right right or like i believe it i believe it um and there's a moment, I can't remember if it's on the first or second episode of 
sex and drugs. But we see the daughter singing and, you know, it's competent singing, but it's not incredible. And then Joan Jett comes up and she's better than the I don't know if she would make it through. I don't know. You know, she would try out for American Idol, maybe make it on and get cut in the first couple of weeks. That's what I think. But then we see Joan Jett be like, that girl's going to be a star. And it's like, "Uh, of what? You know, a show show that's about about creativity has a problem when it's reliant on the supporting characters to tell you if what they're doing is good or not. Right. Like when, you know, like I don't know how to respond to this stuff. Like when he gets up, when he gets up in the morning and he plays his little thing on guitar <laughs> and everybody's like, that sucked. I'm like, I heard it. That didn't sound any wor- better or worse than anything else right. he'd done on the and show. And he played, when he recorded something on his iPhone yeah. and he played it for them and they're like, oh, it's, that's pretty good. I was like, this is like someone just like, you know, <laughs> it's like the most basic chords you could possibly. Right. <laughs> and I think the problem is also that Dennis Leary wrote the music and is maybe a little diluted in that way (laughs) (laughs) by his own ability i don't know like did no one tell him and he has there's this feeling of like this stuff is cool but it doesn't feel cool it feels like a no it feels like spinal tap right like with this very not in the way that like it's like spinal tap it's good right i mean the sense of like oh this is somebody whose life is so removed from reality that when they describe stuff to you you can't help but laugh well and also spinal tap came out in the early 80s and even then even spinal tap in the early 80s was cognizant of the fact that the glorification of the rock and roll lifestyle was was itself a form of nostalgia right and that that's part of the joke like and that was 30 freaking years (laughs) ago and they were hip to that right so it's 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 a very strange kind of setup i think if anything, like if we're doing like time wise, right, it would either be like a grunge band, right, right? or like a boy band. <laughs> like, now right. That, Dennis Leary, as a guy who used to be in a boy band, yeah. I would watch the shit I, out of that. I, I, as somebody who was watching a lot of like MTV in the early 90s or whatever, like this was not at all it the doesn't music make of, sense. right? Like, oh, were you on TRL yeah. or something? Like, <laughs> I guess it's a little bit later, but not a lot later. Well, but even, you know, I don't want to like hold the show's feet to the fires of realism too much. Like, I just feel like they need to account for these things. For me, it's more like you could have a guy who is obsessed with the rock and roll lifestyle. He's 50 years old. He was on the edge of success and didn't make it for a variety of reasons, most of which are his own fault. And now he's got a daughter that he doesn't know, uh, he did, I don't think even knew existed, who wants to be a rock star. And we're a, a solid, like, at least 30 possibly 40 years past the point when rock and roll was at the center of the culture. So he's, you know, he's he's looking at somebody who's coming up who basically could have, she might as well be saying, Dad, I want to be a blacksmith. Right, you know? right. It I doesn't mean, make any sense saying. that I, this I is what she a, wants. I want to be, a, I, I want to be, I want to make it big on radio yeah. drama. That's, I mean, that's what we're talking <laughs> yeah. about yeah, here yeah, practically. Yeah. And that's a whole different conversation. It could be actually a very funny sort of poignant one to have, but that's not the mode that Dennis Leary operates in. Yeah, it has this feeling of being so out of touch with the culture, even like referencing Lady Gaga, who isn't as prevalent currently. They're like, oh, if you just put Gaga's name in anything, you'll... Like, this just not the fi- right I, reference. I, I think four to five years ago, that would have been a yeah. good joke. It has that real, like, back in my day, we knew what real music was and real smoking and real fucking. And now these kids these days, they don't know any of that right. shit, but they're a vegan, bullshit, whatever. Like, it feels like that very, very tired attitude. I- I'm not saying no one has those feelings. I'm sure a lot of people do, but I don't know that it's like, necessarily like a rich source of entertainment and humor. And who is the show for? I mean, I don't know. Dennis Leary. <laughs> <laughs> I did feel like it kind of has the feel of a sitcom in a way, and I I had it on in the background, and I found it to be a really easy show to stay abreast of when you have it on in the background. So it was good, like, 
background noise in a way. I guess so, like, not, I'm not saying that as an insult either. <laughs> I didn't think the show was very good, but I think Matt had a much much stronger negative reaction to I'm it than tar- I had. I'm just tired of Dennis Leary's <laughs> bullshit. I just am. I didn't hate it. I watched the five episodes that FX sent out. There were parts of it that I enjoyed. I think the show is really gonna have to acknowledge the Electra complex it's telling because it's a yeah. really like, oh my god, it's intense. Yeah. Now uh, there's a show in that, <laughs> like because he's acting like this is normal behavior. Yeah. There's something very strange, and and yeah. it's coming at that on a couple of angles. One is the way they meet is him hitting on her, so that's weird. Another is that he then immediately becomes this very, like, obnoxious, protective dad, like, no one talk about my daughter's pussy or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> ugh, weird. Which it translates into sexual jealousy, <laughs> yeah, which is also, which is so, like, like, also very strange. And so it's like, wow, of all the people to be, like, purity ball crap, like... A rocks, right? It's like fucking get your head out of your ass. Like all those people that you've been fucking for a hundred years. Like who do you? Where do you think they came from? That's someone's daughter too. Like what is the matter with you, right? So like we have those two things, and and that to me uh, was like uncomfortable at best. And then the show's like attitude about women in general is so sour and weird. And they're then... either supportive and compliant, or they're whores, or they're like ballbusters. Yeah, those are like the three like modes basically. And there's some minor variations, but not too many. That part is strange. And then we have her also start to date um, John Corbett's character, whose name is Flash, I think. The Flash. Mm -hmm. Flash. Flash. And that's a little strange, too, because, you know, she's, what, like 21 or something? 20, I think. 20, and he's super not. So that's a little weird. And, like, the immediate acceptance of, like, oh, yeah, I remember your mom. Uh Uh-huh. It's like, well, would you? And it's like, oh, yeah, you're totally my daughter. It's like, are we going to get, like, a DNA test, maybe? They don't get any of that. That um, That's the thing. It's like, this show doesn't give a shit about the things that are important. Like, they go straight from, oh, my God, you're my daughter, I can't believe I hit on you, to, hey, Dad, I need need somebody to write me songs for my new album. And, okay, Where's like, hey, Dad, you weren't in my life my whole life, so now you have to do this. It's like, wait a second. Like, who yeah. who comes with, like, that kind of monologue ready to go? No, nobody. And where's and, the where's the secrets and lies scene where they sit in a cafe and talk about this shit? Right. We don't need a lot of it. And like, I'll, give us a minute. Give us 60 seconds of them coming to terms with this really, really major thing. I mean, it seems like they're influenced by her money, but it's like she has $200,000. Like, it's... That's not that... That's <laughs> a ton of money I mean, it's a me. ton of yeah. money. But, like, it's but, New York like, City. Like, there are people who make exactly, that... Exactly. Like, I didn't understand <laughs> their, like, oh, you have that much money for, and for also, people why in does this she industry. Go to, why does she go to him? Of all the yeah. people in the world, why does she go to him? Like, if you got $200,000 to throw around, I'm sure there are a ton of people who could write you a halfway decent song. Why, right. you know, like, does it have to be... Is it the publicity value of this show? Ah. <laughs> so, it's like... It's like a quarter baked. Well, thanks, guys. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Next week, we'll be discussing Deutschland 83 and the second half of BoJack Horseman's second season. If you have any questions, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you'll find me on Twitter at Gazellapent. I'm Margaret Lyons. You can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge. I'm Matt Zoller Sites. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. And don't forget, you still have a chance to fill out our listener survey on canopy.fm slash survey. Get on that, people. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.